Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The COVID-19 pandemic is disproportionately impacting African Americans. This week, a conversation with University of Minnesota Professor of African American and African Studies Keith Mays on the economic and public health disparities that are driving this phenomenon. Professor Mays, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me back, Jim. What factors put African Americans and communities of color at greater risk for the most severe health effects of COVID-19? I think the thing that puts African Americans at greater risk are some of the underlying health conditions that they may already possess, like hypertension, like heart disease, like diabetes. It puts white Americans at the same risk if they have those same underlying conditions. We just happen to see African Americans in, in big cities like Milwaukee and St. Louis and New York uh, showing up uh, to the hospital uh, with COVID-19, but uh, seeing, seeing an exacerbation of the COVID-19, of the virus, because they have some of these other things. So people are showing up, actually, another, uh, they're, they're African Americans who are showing up with something that uh, akin to a heart attack or a stroke, uh, only to determine or to find out that it was virus-induced. You know, it was kind of created by the virus. So I think because of African-Americans, they don't disproportionately have uh, these underlying health conditions uh, versus whites. They just happen to have them in increasing numbers. And so anybody showing up to the doctor with conditions uh, that they previously had that are chronic, and it's really the chronic ones, that they will, have, they will suffer complications from COVID-19 that, that may result in death. So the morbidity rates are much higher with people coming into the hospital uh, with these health conditions, previous health conditions. What are we seeing nationally right now? Are minorities disproportionately accounting for many of the COVID-19 cases? Yes, I think disproportionately in some cities. So uh, I think when you look at places like Milwaukee County, uh, when you look at uh, places uh, like uh, St. Louis and Chicago and New York, I think also it's true for Michigan, for a lot of African-Americans in the Detroit area, in Wayne County, I think you see uh, higher incidences of African-Americans uh, not only contracting, I think the contraction piece is not the issue. They are not more susceptible to getting COVID-19. They are actually more likely to pass away from it because of all kinds of issues. One are the underlying health conditions that many of them may already have, but also uh, issues around poverty, uh, access to health care, access to good health care, and maybe even um, this whole notion of African Americans might not, you know, being uh, willing and, and and able to go to the doctor, or maybe when they even go, Jim, they may be turned away, um, saying that they don't show signs that they are COVID nineteen symptomatic. They and then they should go home and not be treated. We know there was some data that was released prior to the COVID nineteen outbreak. And it indicated that in a number of situations, health professionals often discounted concerns that black patients presented. For example, a black patient might have a concern about a health issue, and uh, it did not appear, according to this data, that they received the same level of attention from medical professionals as a, a white patient may, for example. Do you think this fact could also be impacting how... Uh, People of color are being treated if they come into a health facility um, concerned about possibly having uh, COVID-19. I think so, Jim. I think that one of the things when you come in, 
and and the doctor says, do you have any previous health issues? And you say diabetes or you say, you know, I had, you know, a, a, a stroke or I have, you know, some kind of lung disease or respiratory illness or something like that. So the thing they say, well, here's a few things that you have come into the doctor. You may have COVID right now. That's all well and fine. But if you're African-American and you say that, well, I have some symptoms that resemble COVID-19, but I'm diabetic. Right. But I'm this or I'm that. You may not actually get treated because they said, well, those may those symptoms may be associated with that disease or that illness. And so either go back home or if you call, don't come in at all. And so there are reports that people are dying at home, that the numbers are actually quite low in some states because there are some people who've actually got sick and passed away at home. And we don't know if they actually had COVID-19 or not. And time will tell. We'll find out. But yes, I think that because as an African-American, if you have some of these other conditions, uh, they may think that that's the primary driver of your, of your symptoms and not, and not uh, the COVID-19 symptoms that in many ways are, are, could be one and the same. Well, let's look at Minnesota. Currently, the disparities between the pandemic's impact on people of color versus the white population doesn't seem as stark as in other places. For example, cities you mentioned like St. Louis, Detroit, Chicago, or Milwaukee. What do these numbers say to you? Is Minnesota doing a better job of protecting the health of marginalized communities? Or is there concern the data does not yet show the actual number of cases that are impacting communities of color? That's an interesting question. I think it may be a combination of both, which sounds strange as, as an answer. How can it be both uh, at the same time? I think that Minnesota as a state has done an extremely good job in, as the Carmen parlance is, bending the curve uh, to reflect uh, that we have not only social distance, but we also have adhered to many of the policies that the governor and other state officials, health officials have said that we should do, that we need to do as a state. Uh, But I think also because uh, we are still early in the pandemic in the state of Minnesota, I think that we may see some different numbers in the weeks and months to come in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, And so I'm I'm, I'm especially interested to see if the health disparities or the, the, the the morbidity disparities play out here in the Twin Cities as they are playing out in other places. I suspect that they will, but we just haven't seen them yet. But nonetheless, the state has done a good job. Governor Waltz has done a good job in terms of keeping us safe so far. And we'll see what the month of May brings. Our guest is Keith Mays, a professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic's disproportionate impact on communities of color. Jails and prisons are experiencing some of the largest outbreaks of the virus. How does the criminal justice system disproportionately impact people of color, and how is this contributing to the overall effect the virus is having on black communities? You know, that's a good question. I I don't know. I I have an unsettled feeling about the way prisons are operated and run in general. And so I would suspect or I wonder if the same kind of care is is being given to prisoners as it's being given to the non-prison population. And then when you add race to that, if the prisons are disproportionately filled with prisoners of color. So that's another thing you watch. You asked me about how is this looking uh, within the state 
between the cities versus maybe greater uh, Minnesota? Do we see some morbidity disparities? How is that going to play out? It'll be also interesting to see how it plays out in the prisons. So the prisons that have more prisoners of color, do you see greater disparities there as opposed to the prisons that uh, have more white populations? So, so I don't know. I just have an unsettled feeling about the way in which our prisoners are treated just across the board, even uh, uh, within uh, a non-pandemic era. You know, if this was pre-COVID-19, I'm wondering the same thing. If any illness would break out in the prison, who would get affected or more and who would be uh, affected less? But now, given the state of race and incarceration, I'm wondering how those numbers will, will look. And I think it's just still a little bit too early to tell. Many counties in the U.S. are looking at early releases for prisoners due to the pandemic. Do you think this will be a catalyst for reforming the criminal justice system in the longer term? I don't think so. I, I think that if there are cities uh, and even states that because they, they had already experienced increased pressures on their prison systems, sort of overpopulation explosion of incarceration, like states like California, that have already been releasing prisoners. You know, COVID-19 may spur them to release more because of the pandemic. And I think other states that are experiencing pressures on their prison populations, they may do the same. And then allow that to dictate a policy going forward to maybe release more prisoners, recognizing that, you know, we may not actually uh, need to incarcerate certain kinds of people who may commit certain kinds of crimes. But I think for the rest of the states not experiencing that that population uh, pressure and that sort of weight on the system, um, then I think that it will be business as usual. I think the the policies will remain in effect, will probably have no effect, not even at the level of of discourse and, and policy change considerations. Minnesota's and and, and I want to I want to add to that, Jim, because I think that there's a relationship between that plus what we see in the environment. So I don't know if you was going to ask me a question about the environment, but I'm wondering whether states are looking at the the way in which the environment is reacting to uh, the stay-at-home orders and the lack of pollution that has been generated by us and say to themselves, maybe we need to, you know, change course at the level of policy, and maybe we could uh, institute some kind of, you know, temporary stay-at-home orders every now and then, not to the, to the extent of weeks and months, but something that will give the environment a reprieve, and then let's change policy as a result of what we've seen uh, with COVID-19. I can see California maybe doing that, some of the more progressive states, but again, uh, outside of the progressive states, I, I think there will be no policy change, even in that, that arena as well. Well, let's stay with this idea for a moment. So we have seen in various locations that pollution levels have declined. There are fewer people traveling due to the fact that we are under a stay-at-home order in many places in this country. Uh, We've seen animals coming back to areas that have been vacated by people. And it seems like the environment is, is kind of reclaiming some of the territory that it's ceded unwillingly to humankind. Uh, We know that issues regarding climate change, regarding, for example, poor air quality, poor water quality worldwide tend to disproportionately impact poorer parts of the world, poorer communities, and often here in the United States and elsewhere, communities of color. 
Uh, are you optimistic? You mentioned states that are more progressive, perhaps, looking at this and perhaps considering ways stay-at-home orders could be initiated perhaps periodically, or since we're learning that a lot of us can function uh, relatively productively from home, maybe there will be more opportunities for those who can to work remotely and not have to engage in commuting, for example. So are you optimistic that uh, that this crisis, I guess if we're looking for the proverbial silver lining, that might be it? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think that, that we will find out that course changes have, have taken place because of COVID-19. I think the major question is in what areas of the American life we'll see it. I think potentially within the environment, within the progressive states. But you're absolutely right. I have been thinking that, about that as well. I mean, I, we, we, we are, we've been discombobulated by the timing of COVID-19. It sort of caught all of us off guard. And, and by virtue of the fact that we haven't done any of these things before, now we, we are beginning to see that we, we can work uh, maybe uh, more efficiently, uh, maybe smarter, certainly uh, remote learning and remote uh, employment is a possibility for many sectors of the economy. I think that will be something that we'll see going forward, Jim, uh, that companies will be a little bit more flexible, a little bit more lax in terms of, terms of how they work. Do we need to spend as much time in the office as it were? Uh, I, I've heard companies actually, uh, they're talking about all of the, the revenue that they're losing, but you know, some of them have saved some revenue on the utility side of things by not having people go into the office. Uh, so, yes, I think that we will see some some implementation of policy changes in the level of employment and work uh, and education in, in the environment. Uh, I, I'm just not so so hopeful about prisons and, and the policies around incarceration. But I think in other areas of the American uh, life and public, I, I definitely will. We will mark this era as the moment where we, we change course in, in the United States for the better. And actually, even, mo- even more so with dealing with pandemics and epidemics. Uh, so our public health uh, infrastructure will, will change for the better as well going forward. Our guest is Keith Mays, a professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic's disproportionate impact on communities of color. Minnesota's stay-at-home order has meant the closing of schools, and Governor Walls announced today, uh, this is Thursday, April 23rd, that schools in Minnesota will remain closed for the remainder of the academic year. Let's talk about how this will affect black children in the state. But first, what can you tell us about the opportunity gaps that already exist? Minnesota has one of the nation's largest education gaps between black and white students. Has the state made any improvements in closing the gap in recent years? And if not, why are the current measures not working? And what more needs to be done? Uh, yes, so the state has made some measures. We see in some districts, uh, like Minneapolis Public Schools, uh, there's some metrics that suggest that the gaps are closing in areas like completion rates. So Minneapolis Public Schools graduation rates have increased. Uh, I think the same is true for other districts. I need to look at the test data for the state to see what's going on there. But of course, there are opt-out policies in terms of the state testing now, and that's not only in Minnesota, but across the board. Uh, or they, they are evaluating um, state tests differently. I think that we see some movement on the level of increased 
participation and graduation rates and improvement rates around reading and math. Uh, not, not what we need to see, but we see some momentum there. But in terms of how this still affects uh, students of color, I think because if we go to another format and decide to use technology, one of the challenges for African-American students was, uh, was at the level of, of technology because they didn't have access to either uh, things like computers or they didn't have broadband access. Or there were a number of different things that were affecting uh, students of color from learning and participating in that manner. If the K-12 system would address that, I think it could flatten that curve as it were, right? So the mere fact that school has closed, whatever impacts that we've seen and that has, has been born on students of color, I think that in many ways, what we'll see is that if we course correct, by the time we get to the fall, we can sort of, we can, we can sort of deal with that question and, and, and sort of mitigate those, those problems by the time we get to the fall. But if we don't, we'll, we'll still be back uh, where we were. So yes, I'm a middle-class parent of kids who are in K-12. So my kids are fine because uh, they have the access, they have people there at home who have the ability to be home, number one, because the job allows me to do, do my work from home and I can insist. So those kinds of things, we, we have to uh, be vigilant in making sure that students of color have the same kinds of access points and, and ways in which they can uh, learn and continue their education, even in a different format. So yes, we are always hardest hit because we don't have certain things in place as we've kind of talked about the disparities in our morbidity. The same is true for education. You know, what do we have in the toolbox that will allow us to, to continue to do the things that we need to do as a community? So if the parents can't provide it, uh, is it the responsibilities of schools to provide that? The answer is yes. But I think that these are the kind of questions that we need to put to our K-12 systems to make sure that African-Americans and other students of color don't stay at the bottom when it comes to these kinds of changes in learning. How is COVID-19 affecting communities of color in higher education? Are Black students, for example, disproportionately impacted when college classes switch to an online format? Not automatically. I think the college uh, student population, by and large, uh, you may see some effects of what I just described with K-12 students of color, uh, but maybe not to the same extent. But I think this is where people don't understand. I've experienced this with my students and, and, my, and my classes, that because many of them were holding down uh, one or even multiple jobs uh, that they lost uh, as a result of the pandemic, and the jobs allowed them to not only pay tuition, but to, to be productive students. If you own a, a full scholarship or your parents pay the tuition, you don't have to worry about working. You could just study all day and, and do what, uh, what, what the assignments are asking you to do. But if you had to work and go to school at the same time, then you have a problem. Many of my students have somewhat checked out of the learning to some degree to, to sort of uh, mitigate what they experienced because of the pandemic, and mainly at the loss of, of jobs that they may have relied on and, and their families may have relied on. And so you don't see the impact necessarily when it comes to the, the technology, because many of them have 
access to the technology. Again, a few folks would have a lack of access to internet broadband services, but in terms of the hardware, that may not be an issue. But what's an issue is that now they have to worry about other things they didn't have to worry about. Because they are maybe a low socioeconomic, uh, but they're great students, they have to worry about some other things that will uh, impede their ability to do the work. And so I, I've experienced that as, as a professor of students of color at the U, for sure. Well, let's stay with that for a moment, uh, Professor Mays. So we know that uh, colleges and universities are, are quite apprehensive about what the future will mean for them, given all of the challenges from a budget standpoint that have arisen during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the University of Minnesota, for example, is uh, projecting that enrollment might actually decline coming up in the fall semester. Uh, and a lot of that uh, potentially due to the fact that students would not have the same economic resources or their families wouldn't have the same economic resources due to uh, uh, damage inflicted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Are you concerned if we're talking about students losing the ability to afford a higher education that this, which of course is another outgrowth of the pandemic, that this will disproportionately impact students from marginalized communities? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that the stu student enrollments, they are projected, they still are working out the numbers. They may drop. Um, but again, I think it, it's almost akin to uh, what the governors are, are facing in states when it comes to the pandemic. It's almost like if we do X, um, Y will happen. You know? So if the universities uh, and the college administration does X, uh, they may be able to mitigate. So Right now, they're trying to figure out as fast as they can, at what level are we going to be able to offer our product to students? Are we going to be back uh, fully physically on campus? Are we going to have to go uh, to a remote uh, learning, sol solely remote learning, or it's going to be some kind of combination or hybrid? So they're trying to figure that out now. Uh, once they figure that out, then they can figure out what kind of product they can offer and then be able to sell that to students and their families, but until they be able to kind of figure that out, work that out, it's kind of beyond their control because it's really a, a state question and, and in many ways a national question. But I think no matter what format it is, Jim, I think they'll lose some students. And it's just a question of how many students they will lose and what students. Uh, and will it be students of color disproportionately? I'm, I'm not sure yet, but certainly I think there will be students of color who are current students that may decide not to drop out, but may not you know, may not be able to enroll because of all the pressures that I talked about in the last question you, you talked about. I talked about the loss of jobs. Uh, we're talking about the loss of jobs, even family members of students of color. So they're having to deal with that too. So what kind of pressure are students uh, undergoing right now that won't allow them to come back uh, in the fall or maybe uh, they may have to forego a year, but the same is true for white students as well. What kind of impact will it have on a lot of white students not being able to enroll in the fall. So I think this is all still being worked out and only time will tell how many students uh, the U of M will uh, lose and, and we'll see not show up in the fall. Our guest is Keith Mays, a professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic's disproportionate impact on communities of color. What are you hearing from your students? How are they handling the big changes and how they receive their education? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that uh, just uh, uh, texting with a student um, about an hour before you interviewed me, and uh, she was saying that um, 
she's going to be doing something with me in the fall. I had to remind her I'm going to be on sabbatical trying to finish my book. But I think that the question for her was, well, if I'm on sabbatical, I'll still uh, do the advising, but we still have to try to figure out how will that look, right? And then she has a summer research scholarship program that uh, she received. So she kind of paused and then I paused to say, well, I don't know how this is going to work. Typically, you know, we would meet and we would get the work done, but if we are still under stay-at-home orders or we still have to engage uh, in social distancing, I don't even know how that would work. Um, so I think that that's a question that's on our minds of a lot of students that we don't even know if we can return. And then if we can, what does it look like? I was telling my colleagues that we have departmental meetings on Zoom. And one of the things I said is that, well, you know, we actually can return partially back to the campus, at least from a teaching and student standpoint. So if you have a class of, let's say, 10 students, well, you may need a room that has a capacity of 30 so you can spread them out. Likewise, if you have about 30 students, you may need a, a, a room that seats about 90 students. If you have you know, 200 students, I don't know if the U has a, a room that can seat 800 so you can spread them all out and do social distancing. But those kinds of things could work if you had enough classrooms and you can stagger them and you can keep people apart on campus. Here's the problem, Jim. Once the students who stay on, on campus, who stay in the dorms, once they leave class and go back, then that poses another problem. So how do you actually fix that issue of living in close proximity? It makes the social distancing a little bit challenging, but from a student and teacher standpoint, you can probably get away with that if you can manage the space inside a classroom um, and on a campus as big as the use. But again, the university is probably thinking about all of these scenarios now and, and we'll see you know, how it works out. But I think we can do, and I was telling my wife, I say, you know, even corporations can do it. There's some companies that, you know, many people have offices, then people would have to stay in their offices and then meet like you and I remotely and, and make sure they don't really come together. If they do stay six feet apart. But in the companies that don't, everybody may, you know, have an office and close office. You maybe have a queue. Well, you can't do that. Or you got to figure out another way in which you can get your work done. So I think this is uh, going back to your question about how will we sort of fare in on the other side. Americans are creative enough. We'll figure it out. We'll have a good product. Uh, it's just a matter of, of what that's going to look like. So we got to stay tuned. I'm, I'm wondering uh, myself, just as a, as a professor, what, what life will be like come fall and next spring, since they keep saying that we may be living with this for a, a solid year, year and a half. The pandemic is showing how the lasting effects of racism and economic disparities become matters of life and death in a public health crisis. What do you think should be done to help minority communities get through this crisis? And what do you hope happens after the pandemic? I'm a cynic, Jim. I'm a little cynical. I hope that the conversation that we're having, we continue to have it. And it's a conversation that leads to solutions. The conversation we're having right now about race is about health disparities right? That's not a new topic. Anybody who studies public health, health disparities, particularly racial health disparities, is one of the most important topics that students in public health study. Uh, It's a popular subject area. But now that is part of the, the, the larger American conversation. Can we now have it as a collective, and then can we come up with solutions and not let the conversation go back into the academy, as it were, once the pandemic is over. So that's my cynicism. So I think that that's what's going to happen. But I hope we can continue to have the conversation about how 
pandemics, epidemics, how illnesses, uh, how disorders uh, affect the American public in different kinds of ways. And then people come up with some real solutions. And that's not only just the health stuff, that's disparities in education, disparities in work and labor, disparities in housing. You know, again, so we had the great recession and we constantly had conversations about housing and how it affected people, but to, in many ways, to no avail. I mean, I don't know how much came out of that in terms of really producing real change. Keith Mays is a professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota. Professor Mays, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. The COVID-19 pandemic is generating fear, anxiety, and feelings of social isolation for many of us. How are people coping with the sense of loss of normalcy in our daily lives? And why are many turning to acts of altruism and kindness in these challenging times? Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, we'll pose these and other questions to the director of the University of Minnesota's Center for the Individual and Society, Dr. Mark Snyder. Be sure to visit us at DialogueMinnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.